This is The Lydia Project, conversations with Christian women. Our name is inspired by the life-changing conversation that Lydia had with Paul, recorded in Acts 16. On this podcast, you'll hear from a variety of women whose lives have also been impacted by the truth of the gospel. Your hosts, Tori Walker and Taryn Hayes, hope that you too will be challenged and inspired by how the gospel truths are being worked out in the lives of their guests, ordinary women who serve an extraordinary God. Today, your host is Taryn Hayes. Welcome back to The Lydia Project. I'm Taryn Hayes and today I am delighted to introduce this episode because it features Karen Baird. If you've been around Australia for the last 10 years, you might recognize Karen for her role on Dancing with the Stars on television. Or if you missed that, you may recognize her from her role as the wife of New South Wales Premier Mike Baird from 2014 to 2017. But what you may not know is how Karen became a Christian and how her family's trust in Jesus drove the decisions about family, politics, church and community work. Karen and I had a lovely long chat via Zoom and it was really good to hear the stories behind the stories like how she and Mike met and how they came to choose politics as a career move and how they walked the journey of their daughter's anorexia. But let me not give away too much now. Today's episode is a long one, but I trust that you'll also enjoy hearing about God's hand in Karen's life. Hi Karen, it is so good to have you on the Lydia Project today. I'm very much looking forward to chatting with you. Hi, Taryn. Thank you for having me. I feel very honoured to be here today. So we were chatting earlier and I was saying to you how I kind of did some Google sleuthing and (laughs) discovered that you were on Dancing with the Stars. And that sounds really exciting and really nerve wracking. So do you mind telling me a little bit more about that? It was an amazing experience. It was really, was really fun. It was absolutely nerve wracking. And I did say to my partner at the time, Eric, who's a, who's a lovely, kind young man and a beautiful dancer, and I said, can you just make sure you don't drop me? And he said to me, I've got you, don't worry. So that was a great start. But it's, you know, it's great. It puts you out of your comfort zone and doing something different. And it was, it was, really, it was really fun. It looks a lot of fun. I, yeah, it's saying that I thought you must have been so brave to do that. Uh, on a, well, kind of a live audience and well I did think I did think at the, at the when when the night came I was like oh my goodness like what on earth have I done <laughs> like I presented myself with an opportunity to make an absolute fool of myself <laughs> well you clearly didn't because all the reports are pretty positive so <laughs> well thank you So obviously you didn't start out with Dancing with the Stars and our first question generally is how is it that you came to be a Christian? So I'd love to hear that. I moved around a lot uh, when I was young. So we were were back and forth. My dad was in the Federal Police and in the Air Force. So we were kind of, we were back and forth actually between Canberra and Perth. And we were in Canberra at this time and I was 13 and I was doing confirmation classes with my church with my youth group and had a lovely group of friends as you do it was fun we all got together laugh you know answer questions with the minister it was you know it was a great it was a great time and we left before to move back to Perth before I finished the confirmation classes and so we moved back to Perth to a church that there wasn't very many young people and I actually 
ended up completing my confirmation classes with the our minister at the time on my own. So most of them I was sitting there sort of cuddling his cat and his wife was in the kitchen and he was chatting to me and going through the issues, the questions, the studies. And I remembered distinctly thinking, I actually have to make a decision about this. From when I can remember, I had always had a sense of God. I, always, I knew God was there. I knew he had made the world. I knew he loved me. I didn't really probably understand what that meant. And then it, through these classes and through the studying, and I think being on, on my own, it, uh, the seriousness of it to hit me. And, yeah, it was at that time that I realised I needed to decide if I was going to be Christian if I, if I wasn't and that I needed to decide and then obviously it would shape the rest of my life and the decisions that I make. That was, yeah, that was a point in my life that I, I remember distinctly and I can remember the little bike I used to ride to his house and I can remember the rectory and but that the clarity came that you have to make a decision, you have to own this and this is the direction then that your life will go. Yeah. I, I just think how brave that is for a 13-year-old to be going. That must have been quite daunting to spend that time with your, your pastor. I am so encouraged to hear that he took the time to do a one-on-one -on -one meeting with you. I mean, we know that pastor's time is, is so precious and often it's so stretched. And it's one thing I imagine in investing that time in, you know, 20 kids in one hour, but now he's investing this with one kid in that one hour. And yet God is so faithful and used him in your life and, and beyond. And yeah, it's good to hear these stories, I reckon. No, that, that's true. It, it is like he, that's right. in his whole congregation to take, and he was, he was very, very kind and again, it's one of the things of moving, you know, people that have moved a lot as kids. You know, you, you are, you often, you've missed something or you're, you haven't finished something or there's, and, and he was actually, and, and looking back, he was, he was very kind and to not, you know, not to say well, to me, well, you just have to wait for a year or you have to go somewhere else. But, yeah, to put the time in and to, to meet with me and talk with me was, it was a real blessing. So that was Perth and you're in yes. Sydney now. And yeah. there's, there's quite a journey between 13-year-old Karen and Karen who's talking to me today. Yes. And obviously you are married to Mike Baird and he was the Premier of New South Wales for many years. How did you meet this man? Let us hear the story. Well, yes, yeah, it was a, quite a long, convoluted way, really, because, as I said, I was back and forth, Canberra, Perth. I ended up doing Year 12 in Perth. Sorry, Year 12 in Canberra. After Year 12, moved to Perth, was at uni, and, you know, had one of those dreadful breakups at 19. Was, it was terrible, and I thought, right, I'm going to go and visit my girlfriend, who had subsequently from Canberra moved to, to Sydney. She was at uni in Sydney with her family and thought, well, I'll go over and visit her and, and, and go for a month and catch up with all my old friends. And so I jumped on a bus for three days and drove across the country on my own. 
and arrived in Sydney. I was staying with, with my girlfriend and was going, you know, went to her church and, and youth group and, and one day she said, oh, look, the youth group's up at Katoomba uh, Youth Convention. Let's go up for the day. We, I said, oh, that'd be great. Anyway, so we jumped in the car, headed up to, to the convention and went to where the church was, was Christchurch St Ives, where the, everyone was staying. And I walked in and I saw this rather cute, cute blonde, blonde boy with a lovely smile. And uh, we got chatting. I, I won't say the rest is history, but it sort of went from there. It's very nice. We had, we had a lovely time and you know, just got to know each other a little bit. Anyway, we left. I sort of really didn't think anything of it. It's just this lovely, lovely young man. Saw him at youth group at church a couple of times and then I was supposed to leave and to go home, jump on the bus and they were going to have a house party, youth group house party. And I was leaving on the Friday. He said, why can't you just stay till Sunday night or Monday and then and come on the weekend away? And so I rang my parents and pulled the old... It's this Christian weekend. It's, you know, I really want to go. It'll be great speakers. And, you know, and mum and dad said they were just going, oh, my goodness, she's met a boy. But I was, you know, gave them a really good spiel. And I think I cried. That always helps. And then they finally said, oh, okay. So my poor mum had to register me in university because at that time you had to go in person and do it. She said, okay, I'll do it. And uh, so I ended up going on this weekend. And the first night he had organised uh, for a rose to be placed on my bed. So I came to bed and one of the girl actually, my friend that put it there, I was still friends today, she's lovely. She remembers my candidate of the rose, she said, you've got to make sure this goes on Karen's bed. And so I went there and there's this gorgeous rose and I think he put in a little chocolate and so it was really that sort of, that's, I guess, where our, our romance started and we spent, we did enjoy the speakers and, oh, actually, the funny thing is Mike actually got in trouble for talking to me too much. His uh, minister, youth minister at the time, actually, Rog Green, who's come, is a very good friend of ours, and he subsequently apologised to Mike, which he probably didn't need to do, but he took Mike aside and actually said, you're spending too much time with that girl from Perth. You know, you're supposed to be ministering and looking after the people on the on the weekend. So it was, yeah. So that that was that was where it started. And then we did a long long distance relationship. So he planned to come to Perth, and I came back to Sydney and uni holidays. And we wrote letters, and we got to speak to each other once a week on a Sunday night for half an hour. Because again, the cost of telephone calls was just exorbitant and both our parents were we went over that half an hour and it was probably another hundred dollars so it was pretty strictly policed on both sides and we tell our kids that now and they laugh at us you know say oh are you right you know did the horse come and pick you up and did you have electricity, have electricity? very very yes very cheeky and but I think it was a lovely way to get to know each other and sort of so yeah, we did that for a year and then I finished uni and got a job with Pricewaterhouse in Sydney. So I started my life as an accountant and even as an auditor 
and I, I'd studied commerce at uni, so business and marketing, or oh, sorry, accounting and marketing. And that was, yeah, it was fabulous. I got a job over here. I ended up living with my girlfriend and her family. And so we started a relationship. We were actually in the same city. And we both were leading at Christchurch St Ives at that time. I came in as a youth group leader, as senior high as it was called. And we ended up doing that for oh, six, seven years, actually until we, we actually went to Bible college. And that was, that was an amazing time. Got to know amazing people and beautiful, you know, young people, which I know Taryn and I have, yeah, friend, friend in common. And during that time, though, I decided I didn't want to be an accountant. But in that time, in the first 18 months that I was there, we got engaged. And that was probably about the time that I was like, oh, not sure I want to stay being an accountant. But anyway, got engaged, which was really exciting. Six months later, we were married in Perth and it was fabulous. We had about 30, 30 friends fly over to Perth for the wedding and the boys were all hanging out, went to the beach and there was girl friends and yeah, it was it was a lovely weekend and it, we really appreciated the people making the effort because again it's a long way for a start and it was very very expensive so that that was a special really special time but when we came back we were married it was lovely we we're setting up homes and all those those fun things and I really thought no 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 I don't want to stay in accounting so then I had a career change and, and moved into hotels actually and eventually in, in sales and marketing, which I loved. And that was a career then that I was doing until we went to Bible college. We decided to go to Bible college. And in fact, then I continued that career in Canada because we ended up in Bible college, Regent College in Canada. And that again was a was a strange story. We were both in jobs we liked. We had our apartment. We were funny, we were in the city, we were working in buildings next door to each other. I was at the region. Mike was in that house, so we were just next to each other. And anyway, we went to a prayer breakfast one morning and Lee Hatcher was speaking, it was in the Sydney Convention Centre. And so the, the breakfast had finished, it was fantastic, but it had been running a bit late, we were late for work, so we're literally sprinting down the concourse of the convention centre. It's about a kilometre, so we were running, trying. And it's hard in high heels. And Mike turns to me and says, I think I'm going to be a church minister. And I was like, okay, I really enjoyed the breakfast and the speaker, but that was not what I got from it. God was telling me a lot of things, but that wasn't one of the things he mentioned. And anyway, Mike's going, no, 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 I, I feel I've been called. I want to go to Bible college. And so my head's kind of all over the place, all right, okay, life, life is changing. So now we got to work, I'm like whirring the whole day at, at work. We go home, we discuss it at night and, you know, we're discussing it over the next few days. Anyway, I'm not, one, it, within that time, to Mike I said, you feel led to that, I am there, I'm happy to support you, you know, let's look at it, where, where will we go to Bible college? But I said, God hasn't laid that on my heart. I don't, I don't feel it's for us, but it might be, and I'm sure through the journey the Lord will, will bring me, you know, we'll, we'll come to the same place. But it was really interesting. It was helpful. I, I had a dream and 
I dream a lot, so I don't necessarily take much into what I dream. I'm one of those people that remembers my dreams. So I bore Mike most mornings with a tale of, of some chaotic thing that's happened in the evening. But this one gave me a real, real sense that it was speaking to me. And we were at uh, Disneyland and all our friends were there, family were there. It was, it was a great group. We are having a great time. And we're all lining up for the ride. It's a small world. And everyone's excited and looking forward to it. And Mike says to me, I don't want to go on It's a Small World. I want to go on Space Mountain. And I'm like, well, why do you want to go on Space Mountain? Everyone's here. Everyone's enjoying it. All their friends are here. Everyone wants to go on It's a Small World. And he goes, no, no, no. I want to go on Space, space Mountain. And so I said, look, okay, I don't really want to go with you, but look, I'll go with you. And, it, you know, we went on this, on this roller coaster and it was, you know, it was amazing, it was exciting and it was great, but it was just us. It wasn't, we weren't with our friends. And I really, I felt like the Lord was saying, it's going to be okay. Just take Mike's hand, jump on the ride. I've got you guys, you know, even though you're leaving everyone behind. And that actually gave me a real peace. Again, I still, I still didn't have this heartfelt change, but I really felt God was holding us. This, this, was, this was part of his plan and I just needed to go with it and I'd enjoy it. And we still laugh now about our life is definitely, I do say to Mike sometimes, whatever you can say about our life, you can definitely say it's not boring. And it's, it's definitely been a roller coaster, sort of ups and you know I guess like all of us but it sometimes you know it seems heightened we certainly we certainly have yeah gone for the space mountain ride which which has been wonderful and and God has been with us every every step of the way and so that that was helpful and you know we we decided on Regent College which as I said was in Canada and Mike was going to go full-time so obviously changing countries it was a little bit more stressful and going to Newtown. <laughs> so we packed up everything, said goodbye to our families, jumped on the plane and headed to Regent. And it is one of the most, we reflect back on it, it was one of the most pivotal, most amazing times of our lives. And when we went, we were thinking we'd be gone for three years, that Mike was studying for the ministry. And what ended up happening was we ended up staying a year it was an amazing year. But during that first year, we, we started with amazing people, making great friends, loving the teaching, loving the fellowship. But again, also, it was a difficult time because I felt, both of us felt, it was, it's like God takes you apart. It's almost like Lego. He takes you apart and then he's going to rebuild you. Because you come to this Bible College region, people from all around the world, and I can remember one of the first lunches I had and, you know, all the new students and I'm looking at a table having lunch and there's this lovely guy, Gerald, across from me. And, oh, where are you from? And he's from Germany. And, and I said, oh, so, yeah, what, what, what did you used to do before you came to Bible College? Because, oh, I used to advise the German government on, say, nuclear policy. I'm a nuclear physicist. And I was like, oh, what? <laughs> and I'm sort of thinking... I think I might need to kind of, you know, make my resume sound a little bit more, <laughs> a little bit more interesting than yours. Your, 
worked as an accountant and then in hotels. And But that was the most amazing thing with Regent. There was these people from all over the world, different cultures, different socioeconomic groups, different professions, and you're just all thrown together. And you're all first years. Well, I, I and I was a partner of first year. I wasn't a full-time student. And because I was, I was working, I had to work, obviously. We didn't have the funds just to, to go for the year. So that, that was just an amazing experience in, in so many ways. The, the amazing people, the amazing teaching. And for us personally and as for our relationship. But generally through the year, one of Mike wrote a letter, oh, sorry, a, a paper. And it was how banking is ministry. And it was you know, quite a controversial paper. And he's actually uh, had a few people use it because, you know, really people do not think banking in any way resembles ministry. And he was, he'd written it and the course was run by a gentleman called Paul Stevens, again, who was amazing amazing guy and on the paper it was I think you might need to consider politics as as your your ministry or your calling and Mike's like oh this is this is odd and his dad obviously had been in politics I don't know 15 to 15 to 20 years for a long time anyway grown up in a political family anyway it's like okay so you know you sort of put put that aside and then there was this other couple, lovely couple, old, a bit older than us at the time. They had kids there from New Zealand. And he, one day we were walking, we were all walking out together, and he pulled Mike aside and he just said, look, mate, God's put on my heart. Then I think he might be calling you to politics. Anyway, so this, this ended up happening and that he's kind of weird. You're like, okay, well, this is all right. Let's just, get Lord, you know, but the Lord kept bringing the people and they kept sharing this. So it was really interesting. Mike in the end went, well, I feel, you know, through lots of prayer, lots of self-reflection, that's where God's calling me. And I actually, I got that call. I didn't get the other one, but I got that call. And I said, you know what, I, you know, God is drawing me in that direction as well. And looking at your strengths, where it's placed you, the family you were in, I think, you know, bringing that all together, I, you know, it, it makes it makes sense. So we felt compelled to come back after the first year. So Mike just did the diploma, came back after the first year to like pursue that and to you know just see where see where God was going to take us. But between coming back from Regent and actually going into politics, Mike becoming a member of Parliament, there was a ten year gap. So. I'd sort of encourage people that, you know, God draws you to these things, but, you know, it's his timing. It's not, it's not our timing. And within that 10 years, we had three children. I ended up with, I was pregnant with our oldest, Laura, when we came back. Then two years later, I had Kate. And at that time, we moved to London for three years. We came back from London. And then for a couple of years later, after that, I had our son. And we, when he was one, we went and lived in Hong Kong for a while with Mike's work. And during that whole 10 years, we were involved in politics. We were involved in young liberals. We were involved in the Liberal Party, handing out the brochures, doing a lot of what people have done for us, supported different candidates. And within that 10 years, Mike did three pre-selections. He lost two and won the third. 
And when he won that third pre-selection, he decided, right, well, this is it. I've won it. I really want to put all my effort into it. So he actually took three months off work and door knocked thousands and thousands, personally, uh, houses. And within and that was then we, we actually we won that election. And it was really interesting too, a week before the actual election, the Liberal Party rang him and they said, mate, the numbers are in and you're not going to win. Like you're, you are 10 points behind. And we were, we were just believing and moving forward. And we're like, okay, well, we're just faithful. You know, God, God does amazing things. And so we got that news, but we just kept on, kept on moving ahead. And we, he won and he, he won by the points, I think, that they thought he was going to lose by. And, yeah, it was an amazing, an amazing night. Then sitting member that he was going against, it, it really got, the whole thing got quite nasty. And my brother-in-law ended up with men in dark suits knocking on his door late at night. Who are you going to vote for? It was, it, was, it was an interesting time. It was quite a tumultuous time. And the pre-selections themselves, pre-selections, I think, I think both Mike and I would say they're actually worse than elections. So you've sort of got this going on. We've got three small children, but that was the 10-year journey to politics. And then Mike was the member for Manly and he got brought into a shadow cabinet straight away as treasurer. He had treasurer, he had youth affairs and... He had another one. He had a lot of portfolios. So he was sort of, it was a baptism of fire straight into politics. And then it went from there. Then they were in opposition for a few few years and then they won and became government. Then he was was treasurer and able to get, that was part of his mantra is if you, look after things economically then you look after people and you need to have a heart for people still and still look after the most vulnerable but one of the best ways you can do that is to be financially and and a good steward of with the money that you receive so while he was doing that and that becomes kind of all encompassing too for the family it is truly a 24 hours, seven day a week job, particularly with the social media now, with the news. Sort of when he went in, that that was all, you know, that was all starting and was all all up and running. With his dad, it was was very different. His dad used to have to run down in the morning, you know, to wait for the paper, whereas Mike would be beat, you know, if something came through at one in the morning, generally at five in the morning would be an update of all the news stories. That affects everyone, it affects the family. And then, yeah, then one day Luke was on a sleepover, the girls were at school and my girlfriend arrives at the front door with Luke early and she says, what on earth is going on? And I said, what do you mean? And she said Barry O'Farrell, who was the Premier at the time, had resigned and it was totally out of blue. He called the press conference that morning and he'd resigned so suddenly Mike was was understood to be one of the possible successors 
he was probably you know number one or number two and that 24-hour period was one of the most intense periods of our lives so I'm texting his office going oh what on earth is going on and they finally got back to me Mike was actually in a conference actually speaking to I think a thousand people so he had actually absolutely no idea for three hours the government's going mad people are calling everyone there's calls going on it was and within 24 hours he was premier but it was it can be so divisive I think everyone knows politics you know the way you watch it it's it's an interesting beast in itself and Mike he said I I will accept the premiership if I go in if it's unanimous because what we had had unbeknownst to anyone else this was the Wednesday. On the Monday, our oldest daughter had been diagnosed with anorexia. And so we were reeling with that. We were obviously very worried about her. And then suddenly he's going to be Premier. And people are calling him saying, what well, he said, I need to go home and speak to my family. And we will think about it overnight. And... I, I will tell you in the morning. So he's got this huge pressure of so many people calling him, wanting to know what he wants to do. Anyway, he eventually came home. We're praying about it. We, we've sat down. We sat down with our children and spoke to them through it and they were very, very encouraging and Laura was like, no, 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 Dad, you've got to do it. You'll be great. You know, we'll, we'll work through her issues through time and, and through it all. And he actually called, he's got, he's in a prayer group with three other guys, so there's four of them. They're actually off surfing this weekend and they've been <laughs> boys trip. And he called them. So they've been meeting for over over 20 years, every try and maybe every fortnight, but pray for each other. Anyway, he said, no, 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 I have to meet with them, see what the boys say, we're going to pray through it. And so then I ended up over at his mum and dad's place. My mum and dad were living in Perth at the time. And it was kind of funny. So he's down in Manly praying. And Bruce, who's obviously very connected politically, is getting all these phone calls. What's your son doing? What is his son doing? And I can still remember Bruce turning to me and saying, how about a little less praying and a little more phone calling? <laughs> and I said, I said, Bruce just settle down <laughs> he's doing a much better thing but he was you know he was obviously very stressed it's his son he knows the political process and so the, the family were just kind of laughing anyway we, we had dinner he came home we prayed as a family and he decided to accept and he he did all of that without making one phone call to one person asking them for their vote so to Become a leader with that is is very rare, and it you don't know any owe anyone anything. You haven't promised you haven't promised this ministry money. You haven't yeah you you are free. You're almost like a clean skin. So the Lord delivered that. So Monday we were told our oldest daughter had anorexia. Wednesday resignation. Thursday we were in government house it was this was the Thursday before Good Friday 
I was running around trying to find long pants for my son at the time, who I think was 10, and you know, something, something that a little bit more formal than shorts, and something for the girls. We were in government house Thursday night, and then Friday, we were actually meeting uh, Prince uh, William and uh, Kate. It was, it was a wild week and I, I was laughing with friends and I said, this could be the highlight of his, well, well my association with Mike's political career, that I get to meet Prince William and, and the Duchess on Manly Beach. And so it was just wild. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what do you, what do you wear? to get introduced to a princess because there's protocol because Barry and his wife Rosemary you know had been briefed that they'd known for probably months I think Rosemary was getting her hair done when she heard Barry had resigned it was it was just madness so I'm standing on Manly Beach in pantyhose wedges because that's what I thought you had to do so that was our that was our first week with Mike being premier. So yeah, it sort of went from there. That's a roller coaster of note. <laughs> yes, yeah, it was like it's it's it was surreal, and it's sort of I mean it, it's funny. And my my girlfriend went right. We've got to go to the shops, you know. But it was Easter; nothing was open. It, it was like I think you know the boys put on suits and away they go. But it, it's you know, it's, it's very different. <laughs> I, I can tell you it's very different meeting the royals. You can't just rock up. No. <laughs> it was quite funny. It was just, yeah, it was slight madness. <laughs> and the scrutiny that you're going to be under now, and especially if that's the first official, like, thing that you had to do to meet the royals, but it's high-profile stuff. It must be nerve-wracking. Oh, it, it was. It was. And I think... Uh, you, you are because you're thinking well it, it was quite it was quite wild because we went down to to manly where we were meeting them we were meeting them at a child hospice down there which they which was wonderful they wanted to support and we'd had a lot to do with bear cottage we'd done a lot of fundraising and uh yeah very very supportive this beautiful place where terminally ill children basically go to be cared for and die and they look after their family Anyway, so we're we're driving through, and there was about ten thousand people lining all the roads. So we're in this like we're in this motorcade of people everywhere watching for them. And then we we get there and we're lining up the greeting greeting line as 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 they move down. But because Mike was now the head of New South Wales, we we were the first to meet them and. I mean, the, the wonderful thing, you meet amazing people. We've met so many amazing people and I'm not, a lot of the amazing people aren't the princes, princesses or the heads of states. They're the amazing volunteers that get up every day and do the most amazing things. You know, you're meeting people from different socioeconomic, uh, cultural groups and they're amazing. But this, obviously, this meeting has its own special difficulties, I'd say, or challenges, challenges mm. is a good word. And so you were, it's like, and I had, so I had to, had to curtsy, you have to do the proper curtsy, you know, you're not, allowed, not supposed to touch them, what are you going to say? And, and literally these cameras 
like the British press that follow them around, they are are vicious. Like (laughs) if you get in their way, I nearly, it was so funny at one point. So we're in the line with, you know, in the filming, they're obviously wanting to film then. Then then I've moved to the side and I've nearly had my nose taken off by, by an English cameraman coming past and look at what it was it, and at that point it was so surreal and happened so quickly I think in one sense that was a blessing for that one because you can't you can't go into you can't worry about it too much because it's happening you've got to work out timing what you're going to do where you, you know what you're going to wear people tell you where to stand so but yeah the, the suddenly that that's what hit me the the scrutiny there was this scrutiny when you're in politics and certainly that that was a big challenge for me with my children. I just wanted them to be protected. That was always a constant prayer with God. And it was something, you know, that I would often release to him, then I'd pull back, then I'd release. It was one of those. But, you know, he, he always had them. And, and they have been amazingly, they were amazingly protected through it all. But, yes, the scrutiny, and particularly that day, it was, I can still remember it and sort of laughing laughing with them on uh, on Manly Beach and then we had to go and say goodbye to them when they left and you do the lineup that you see on the tellies with these you know with their private jets you're lining there to say goodbye and that was baby George at the time and I got I actually got to hold baby George's hand it was so cute <laughs> and uh, sort of wave them off but you are you are terribly aware that actually if you particularly in that circumstance, if you do step out of line or, or you do something wrong, it, it could be very embarrassing. A bit like dancing with the stars and falling over. <laughs> that is funny. <laughs> you were talking as well about your eldest daughter having a struggle with anorexia. And so mm. that must have been quite a big worry, especially when Mike became Premier. Look, it did. And she was in the middle of her HSC. It's so her last year of school, year 12. It was an extremely stressful year and it had manifested itself for her into, into anorexia. She got terribly, terribly stressed. And so we were very, very conscious of protecting her and, yeah, just keeping her out of the limelight and also keeping that out of the public domain. And we had a wonderful team working around us, really, really beautiful people. Quite a number of them were Christians, but obviously not all of them were but they were beautiful people so Mike had this terrific EA who literally sort of ran our life for us and look she still does she still works still works with us and we'll probably be lost without her but Mike and I talked about it we talked with Laura and we had seen the psychologist on Monday and she said it was very very important that he and I and as a family that we went to counselling with, with Laura or we were there. We took her. Sometimes we would be in it, sometimes we wouldn't, but that we were always there. And so Mike prioritised. We worked out a day and she was going every week and we told Belle and Belle was, was wonderful, uh, soul of discretion. And just between, between us and obviously his drivers knew and it wouldn't matter what was going on in his week, that time slot was unmovable. He took that decision on and with that in mind and totally prioritised her with that. And a, a blessing for us is, you know, obviously that's the sort of thing that look, stays 
with you in your life forever. But she was fortunate that within six months she was she was a lot better. But I really think a lot had to do with we got onto it early. Obviously, prayers. The Lord had her, and yeah, that that was just that was just not moved. He would his drivers would just take him. I would meet him there. And we would quietly go up. It was all very, yeah, done very privately. And uh, we were able to sort of, yeah, deal with it as a family, amazingly, with such a public, yes, public scrutiny on us of us. There was one interview when he just got in and they wanted to come in and film the family having breakfast. And we were like, oh, this is, you know, this is interesting. And But she was fine. She wanted to do it and... Look a few, you know, there was a few, oh, Laura, you know, Laura looks a bit skinny, but it was, it was okay and she was okay and she able to manage it. If our kids didn't want to do anything, if they wanted to come to events, they're more than welcome. We never kind of, the kids were never part of the media package. That makes sense. Our middle daughter loved all of that. So she loved coming to functions and, and whatever she could come to, she'd love to. Our little fellow was a bit little and he didn't, didn't you know, he was happy to stay at home with his mates or his nanny. Or, and Laura certainly did not like that side of it. So we, we just sort of kept her and protected her as best we could in that. Mm-hmm. But it was definitely, yeah, it was definitely interesting timing and praying through it and, and thinking, Lord, like this is, you know, you don't understand it at the time, but this is what it is, this is reality. And we dealt with it as sort of as best we could and and Laura would think it was totally she would she never said it was not the right you know the right thing to do or that she hadn't you know she wished we hadn't done it yeah sure that must have been a quite a tumultuous time for you just having to navigate all these new things it's one thing as a mum trying to navigate your child's anorexia but to throw in your husband's premiership all at the same time that's crazy. And you say that other kids were, did they cope okay through this time? They, they actually did. Their school was very good. Their schools really looked after them. We had great relationships with sort of the principals and particularly their, particularly their primary school when they were, were younger. And then they changed into high schools. But both, all of their high schools were, were just very respectful and... It really wasn't until Laura got into uni that the personal attacks came. So really up until they all finished year 12, they were, they were very, very protected. And I, for me, I wouldn't have got through it. I had a very close-knit group of girlfriends. I had one particular girlfriend who really helped me with Lawsy through the anorexia because part of that is you have to be there at every meal. So someone has to sit down with her at every meal. So I could do, you know, I was used to doing breakfast and it was breakfast, morning tea, lunch, afternoon tea and dinner and, and then supper. She had to have something before she went to bed. And so, and we, so we've, got, we've got that and then you have to be, you want to be very careful like she has to have someone she trusts. We have to have someone we trust. And suddenly the events, the functions, like they, it was uh, the leap to how many times I was then out during the week 
was uh, exponential. It was just a jump. So I, I was trying, I would not be out more than three nights a week. Mike was generally out six, sometimes seven. And so dinner time then became, it was really, really, really hard. But I have a girlfriend who, she's known Mike since I was 16. I moved to Sydney when I was 20. So I've known her since then. And she was an absolute rock for us. And she had spent a lot of time with the children. She was very close with the kids. And so she would actually come and sit with my children and have dinner and make sure Laura ate her dinner. And in one sense, was such such a blessing to have her there and to be able to do the events. But then it was also, it actually also ended up being a break for me because even if I didn't go to the events, it would have been seven days a week, just me. And those, those meals, anyone that's done it or had a, a teenager or a son or a daughter that's had it, meal times are, are shocking. And it, it's also trauma for the other children. Like sometimes I would just have to say, you guys are like almost to my to my youngest son. I go, darling, just go and have your dinner in front of PS4, or go and watch telly, or Kate would just quickly and and leave because it really it could take hours, and it was really quite traumatic. So the Lord really blessed us with my girlfriend being able to to come in and do that, and it, then it allowed us the freedom to sort of be able to take up the job and also to support Mike, like to suddenly have that job and he was out. He would rather he would rather be home. But to be doing that on your on your own seven nights a week or six nights a week is is not fun. So I felt like for us, for our, our relationship, for our marriage, it was also very important for me to support him, for me to be there, to be seen in, in a sense and to be supporting him and also to spend time together. I mean, sometimes the best time we would have is in the car driving to a function. Yeah. <laughs> was sort of yeah, our quiet time to chat was an incredibly, incredibly stressful time, but we managed it. And the kids, yeah, with, with politics, the kids, as I said, it wasn't great for Laura when she went to uni and she ended up leaving Sydney and going to uni outside of Sydney because... She found it, friends of hers, you know, being quite disrespectful and really quite mean on Facebook and, you know, being attacked through social media. And yeah, she found that really hard. Whereas the other two were, did, didn't, didn't have that so much. Katie got it again when she sort of went to uni, but she had great friends, year 11 and 12, very supportive. The school was fantastic. Um, would always keep a keep a look out on us, look out on them, and and for Luke, I remember the schools we had death threats at one point, and so I had to have security on me and the kids. Also, they had they had to know where the kids were, and so we would pick them up every day. We would have cars. We would have I'd have a policeman following me. I used to laugh. It was a terribly interesting group job for him it's like well we're going to Coles and we're off to the gym <laughs> and then we're, then we're picking up the kids 
I, love, I was chatting to one day and I said, look, I'm going to try and come up with something a little bit more interesting for you to follow me. Maybe I'll do a harbour cruise or something just to, you know, just to throw it out there. But it's, it's a frightening thing and it's frightening for the kids. And, but the school was great. You know, someone, there was someone, I saw someone at school came to ask about Luke, you know, and they were on to it straight away. They contacted us. They were, they were just very, yeah, very, very protective of the kids and really quite wonderful. Yeah. I was actually going to ask you about the social media pressure that Laura was under. That's just, that's just horrible. Did she find it better at being at the different university outside of Sydney? Well, she did. She's a funny one. She didn't tell anyone who her dad was for six months. So she, she went totally, totally under the radar. And it was quite funny because she, she found it really hard and really hurtful and they were saying horrible things to her and horrible things about her dad. And, yeah, she's much more our, our sensitive one. She, you know, takes it on. And so, no, she was hilarious. So she didn't tell anyone for, I don't know, six to eight months. She'd gone to uni and got to know these people. And I think because you're not in Sydney, they don't put it together. And anyway, one day her dad had done something and it was positive, so this was good. And a couple of her friends were talking about it, going, talking, oh, no, Mike Baird's done this, blah, blah, blah. She said they were walking along and she said, oh, well, actually, that's my dad. And they looked at her and they said, yeah, yeah, yeah sure, like, sure. And because <laughs> she, she hadn't said anything, and they hadn't really, you know, worked out the name. And she goes, No, 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 that's my dad. And then they sort of, she said it was kind of like, and then they went, Ben, oh, oh my goodness. So, yeah, so she, she loved being under their radar and, and, and just being herself. She was just Laura Baird. She wasn't Laura Baird, Mike's Baird's daughter, and she could just get on with her own thing. And then I think by then, she, you know, her relationships had been established and she was she was sort of quite comfortable with people knowing so you probably have had a fair bit of Mike Baird's wife as the label attached to you yes <laughs> but what I've been reading you've you've actually had a lot to do with various organizations in a, an ambassador capacity can you tell us about that sure sure I have I uh I have been very blessed to associate and be involved with some amazing organizations and one of the first ones was the Gidget Foundation. And again, this was an amazing, I really, you know, again, the way the Lord works, his timing, the way he puts people together. Anyway, the Gidget Foundation was just starting out and this was a foundation for women suffering postnatal depression. And it was, you know, to raise the awareness, to raise the conversation, to make it not a, not a shameful thing. It's it affects so many women and then affects families and, and affects husbands and some husbands get it as well uh, or fathers or some fathers get it anyway apparently phone phone call went into parliament house they, they didn't know it was sort of like two mutual friends they wanted to hold a fundraiser and mike got contacted his office got contacted and so for a fundraiser to happen in parliament house it has to be sponsored by a, a member of parliament it has to be yeah, one of them will stand up and, and yeah, host, host the evening or the luncheon. And so they rang him, his office, and he was, he was like, oh, my goodness, this is fantastic. He was upset. I would love to do this. My wife, you know, had it with our, our first daughter and, and we've, you know, we've gone through it and, you know, been dealing with it. And, you know, it was something that... Uh, 
yeah, both of us were, were terribly passionate about and obviously had experienced. And so we got to know BJ Roach and his wife, Kathy Knox, and Mike hosted the event and, and we, we were chatting with them and it, we were able to share our personal experience with them. And we just connected. They were just an amazing couple. And they were, Gidget had started, again, there was this amazing connection with the Northern Beaches girl and that's, that's where we live, that's the area Mike is the MP for. And a local girl, lovely, apparently life, you know, no one knew, lots of friends, lots of sport, beautiful family. And she, unfortunately, you know, she it got so bad she took her life when I think her daughter, daughter was very young. I think it might have been 11 months or 12. It was, you know, very, she was very young. And no one knew. You just, and, and so it was such a terrible shock. It wasn't like she'd been struggling. And so this this foundation, and she was, her nickname was Gidget. So this Gidget foundation was started by her family and then taken up by BJ Roach, who's a gynecologist and an obstetrician, and his wife, Kathy Knox, because they'd also had their, she had suffered very bad postnatal depression. And so then, yeah, so then a partnership really grew out of that and I was able to, to speak and share my story and was able to do some media for them and just try and help raise awareness. Uh, yes, yeah, speak, speak to, to women if they, they wanted to talk about the experience and, and advocate for change. And Mike was also advocating for change. And we, you know, because we, we totally understood it and what a devastational thing this is, and it's, and it's devastational for the wider community. It, it costs government money. It costs everyone in the community money if families are breaking down and, and this, is, this is going on. So, yeah, that, that was an amazing partnership, amazing coming on as an ambassador. And I was actually then involved in fundraising for them. I have been involved. We locally do a, a Melbourne Cup lunch, but it's, it's a totally charity-driven lunch. It's been started by Mayor Jean Hay. It's been going now for, I think, I don't think it'll be happening this year, but uh, COVID and everything. But I think this year is the 36th year and it's raising money for the smaller charities, local charities that, that haven't got the wider, wider appeal, the wider support. And so at that stage, Gidget was very small, we are starting out. It's been wonderful to see that. It now, it's now grown. It's a corporate, wonderful corporate charity. You may have even seen some of their ads. They've got this amazing campaign of ads with a woman speaking like she's got post-annual depression, you know, open lines, phone lines, and they provide free counselling with a psychologist. So they're in partnerships. It's, it's a fabulous organisation. So that was one of them. And then I was also involved with a, a charity, B Centre, which is the children's trauma. And that was, again, I got involved as a local charity. They look after kids, they provide counselling, and it's based on play therapy, again, which is something that not a lot of people have heard about. But you can imagine, and, and as a mother yourself, children from the age of, I think they even take them from two or three, right up to maybe it's 11 or 12, but particularly the youngies, they aren't able to articulate how they're feeling, like from a normal sitting in a room with an adult talking at them. 
it, it doesn't translate for them because they, they don't know what's going on inside. Obviously, there's trauma, there's turmoil, they act probably, and they act out in certain ways. And so this is an amazing, again, amazing charity set up by a, a lady, Deb Colleen. And so I've just really involved, loved being involved and, again, raising money and just awareness on, on that level. And also there was Lighthouse, which is, again, for women escaping domestic violence. And it's, but the idea with Lighthouse is it's not a refuge as such, but it's started by a, a lady, which I love to call my friend now, Josie Parata, who had suffered domestic violence herself and found herself pregnant with three small children in a woman's refuge handed hundreds of papers of that she had to fill out and she said it hit her then and, and again she's a beautiful christian woman who i think it was god she said in that moment so in her moment of the deepest trauma she was able to think i do not want another woman to have to go through this you're at your lowest ebb i mean i you know you can probably hardly think to put shoes on in the morning make sure your kids are actually dressed but to as we all know dealing with government departments is a very stressful and difficult process and so her idea is to provide a process that someone actually comes in sits with you helps you do the forms helps you set up your finances helps you get a resume helps you work out housing it's an empowerment for these women and to so they don't feel they have to go back to an intolerable situation which is often the case because you're not able you know they're not able to establish themselves financially they, you know and to bring their kids into an environment where they're happy and safe and so she yeah she does an amazing amazing work there and that's just growing and being established so speak when I can for her and, and for that organisation, try and raise money, try and raise awareness. And that that's just another wonderful uh, charity to be involved in. And I, and I have been involved with others, but there are a few. And also I think I mentioned Bed Cottage, which mm. is the children's hospice, and we were very, very involved with that, with fundraising, with visiting, taking people to see it, to try and show them what an amazing place it is, a place that you think would be full of heartache and a very sad place, is a place full of joy. And it's this beautiful, beautiful place. So I had lots of amazing experiences that I've yeah, been able to be involved in. You're also involved with Collective Shout, is that right? It is, it is. So that's, I'm on the board for Collective Shout and... I am very, very excited. I've been on the board probably for maybe 18 months to two years. So I was supportive with Collective Shout and Melinda Tankard Reese. I had heard her speak, someone was just very, it, it pierced my heart what she was saying. And again, I think, you know, we touched on social media and the internet and the, the pressure that young people are under and the invasive nature of it and, it and it's in all of their lives like we can't you can't put your child under a rock they are going to be exposed to it in what, one way or another and Melinda is this amazing lady that's taken on the very difficult subject of 
pornography and the sexualization of girls and women in the media and how the internet obviously the easy use of it and how pornography the sex trade it's been able to infiltrate in, into the internet youtube young people's sites and and it's captured captures their minds and gives girls particularly a terrible i mean i think girls struggle anyway you know your sexualization you know it was bad enough when i was a child and it was magazines and you know you've got to look this way you've got to be this way you don't you know you've got to be nice you and and women i think you know we are we, we are more nurturing we are going to think more of other people i think that's it's obviously a scale some of us are better at saying no than others but i think as a whole we 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 are more we have more of that i think the you know it's a beautiful thing that the lord has given us but it's also can be so easy manipulated and particularly with, with young girls teenage girls and the things they see on the internet the, the the bullying that may happen the images that we get so you have that side and you have the girls being treated i think even worse so now that than as as sex toys really to gratify men and, and boys i think that whole identity it's wrapped up in in a lie of saying this is sexual empowerment and melinda actually goes you know it's not and it's okay to say no and actually what the porn industry is telling you is a is a healthy sexual relationship is lies it's all lies but it gets wrapped up in the girls so the girls think they've got to wear these things they think they've got to act provocatively they think you know it's just at them all the time and it's it's amazing as part of collective shout there's there's the advocacy there's the the actual got they they're amazing we, we have a small team of contractors actually that go in and, and they actually keep constantly looking at the internet and the and youtube and facebook and and different things that are coming up and constantly putting trying to to bring things down that are that are actually hurtful i think to our young people and i think we're we're selling them a lie we're selling the girls a lie and that's all wrapped up wrapped up in them and, and having two teenage girls i know i've heard it i've seen it i've heard it out of my girl's lips what's expected <laughs> and then you've got the young boys and my young boy i, I fear for him in relationships that boys are being sold a lie as well that this is a, a healthy relationship this is how you treat girls this is how girls want to be treated so you've got these young impressionable minds and we're just letting it just it's just so insidious it just we're just letting it happen and so collective shouts uh like really we take a stand and we say actually this is not acceptable this is not the way it is and this is the alternative and it's not a christian organization so it's, it's an ama yeah, amazing organization that it, it's and it's, it, it's an awful to topic like no one really wants to talk about it and the things that are going on are dreadful and what our young people are trying to navigate is it, they shouldn't be doing it on their own we all know the statistics of young boys you know i think it's now down to eight or 12 most i think one out of two has seen porn like that, that's a terrible statistic 
you know, this sexually active girls, sexually active at 12. I mean, that's, that's again, a dreadful statistic and feeling that they, they need, they have to do these things to, to be appreciated, to be popular, to, to maybe have a boyfriend. We, we all know the, the pressures of young people. And one of the things also, besides the campaigns, and there's corporate campaigns, there's campaigns on individuals, there's can, but Melinda and there's a couple of others that go into schools and the letters that you that she receives are absolutely heartbreaking. She got a letter, uh, a note from a young girl. She she goes in from year seven, so she's year seven to nine, she sees. I think this girl, young girl, was 14, 15, and wrote to her and said, Thank you so much for coming today and speaking to us. She said, I was actually contemplating suicide because you know, if this is what life is about, if this is what is expected of me. She said, thank you for giving me an alternative point of view and, you know, for, for speaking truth into such a, such a dark and, and terrible situation. And that, that's, that's one of hundreds, thousands that, that Melinda gets. And it's not just the girl. She goes in and speaks to boys. And, the, you know, some of the boys, she's had one where... She does try and separate them, but this was this was a school where the boys and girls were in together, and she was speaking speaking to them both. And this young boy stood up, and he said, "I apologise." He actually apologised to all the girls in the room for treating them in that way as as an object, as there for his 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 benefit, his his sexual benefit, and. It's, there's some, you know, some dreadful statistics and we, we it's, it's a difficult one. Like they, you know, we all say, oh, that's fine. It's just fun and, and it's sort of out of Christian circles in the world. And we, we know it's not and we know that's not what God intended and we know God intended it for, for our edification, for, you know, it was a, it's a special thing in life that he's given to us. And actually what did a way of speaking to you know we've sold our young people a beat up Datsun 200 whatever sitting in the front yard and this is the, this is it when actually the Lord you know so, I don't know what it is sleek Mercedes sports you know they I guess that speaks more to the boys I don't know but that you know we, we've sold them a lie a total lie and collective shout is really it's this amazing group of women that have got together grassroots organisation. You know, it was started by Melinda and a couple of her friends and one of the founding members uh, is a psychologist. She's, she's now had to leave. She's had two children and she has her own, uh, she's a psychologist, has her own practice and deals in body issues. And another interesting statistic, she said, most of her clients are now women in their 50s coming in and, yes, struggling with with their bodies who they are because that's it's like the flip side isn't it we've got the young ones that have to kind of come up with the the fancy you know do do the dance and and perform whatever perform in however they're supposed to perform and then you've got the other end you've got the, the older woman who you know again porn throws on the heap and and says you're not worth anything you're not attractive basically if you lose lose your sex appeal well, what, what good are you? And it's, it's, I think it's a big issue and it's something 
that, you know, we, we really have to, I think, speak out against, you know, and, and Mike and I have talked about this and, and when he was in government and, you know, we need to have bans. It needs to be an opt-in, not everyone gets it. Like porn should be an opt-in and they That's shouldn't great. be in pop-ups. Yeah, it, it, we need to do that. We And, you know, it's yes, you have to sign your name to it, but if you think it's okay, you should be able to sign your name to it. But, you know, you don't have your 12-year-olds going, oh, my goodness, what's this? And traumatising any other poor young child that's around them. So, yes, I'm quite, I'm quite passionate about that. And I guess that's, that's probably, that's my focus, one of my probably major focuses and what I'm involved in kind of now, really. And, and I see that as, as heading, heading forward. And I think speaking into that space, and as I said, it's it's not not a Christian organisation, but a lot of the women that are speaking into it and working in it are, are Christians, and you know have a real heart for it and heart for their their young people. We've I really feel we've lost a generation, and we need to you know work harder. I think to save save the ones coming up. Like we see younger and younger kids. On these devices and they're not safe they're not safe yeah i'm so encouraged to hear the work the collective shout is doing actually tori interviewed melinda early on in the lydia project i think episode eight has has an interview with her so actually i think i'll link that in the show notes so that people listening to your interview can also go back and listen to hers but yeah it feels like it's a massive battle massive battle and mm. obviously you would feel it with your own children as well and you know, it's with my kids as well. And there, there have been times when pornography has popped up in the most insidious ways. So you think you've got all the safety devices, all the, the whole thing locked down. And years ago, my now 16-year-old was very little and she was one of those little mm. gaming sites where you can choose a little online game to play. Yes. And through that, she clicked on, on one little game to play and that game then led her to something else which led her to something else. And, and, you know, for her, that was traumatizing, absolutely traumatizing. And who knows what might have happened if, if she never told us at any point in time. And, and that's the thing. I think a lot of the kids then, they don't know what they're saying. They're, they're frightened. They're not going to tell anyone. And, and it's, they're set up like this. Like these, these organisations set them up like that. I don't know if you're in the Safe Schools, the Safe Schools site. It actually... Porn Hub was there was the way it was linked had somehow so if, if you had a child going on to safe schools they would eventually come to a porn site. Oh I mean that it, that's frightening and as a parent you just wouldn't it would just not enter your head that that could happen and it, it is it's a, there it's a very very dark place so it's you know needs lots of prayer lots of support in in that that area because it's, it's you know it's, it's money money sex it's it's just so dark and they just try and wrap it all up you know in a nice big pink bow and go oh no this is great and this is this is sexual empowerment this is not sexual empowerment mm -mm. this is sexual bondage <laughs> absolutely and mm. and your psychologist friend is is seeing that with the 50 year old women down the line and if only they, those women it. can talk to those girls and, say, and tell them their story. Exactly. I was fascinated, fascinated to hear that because she's, she's obviously dealt with you know, young, 
young girls and but and as her practice has grown and but yeah she said yeah she said at the moment that majority of her clients are yeah sort of in their probably late 40s to, to 50s and that really really shocked me yeah so i'm assuming that this is what's on your radar at the moment are there other things that you are passionate about or other ministries that you are involved in at the moment well i the ministry i run we, we mike and i run a small group we have yeah, a wonderful group of, of christian friends so so we're doing you know i love that we have that every, doing that every week and we're selling revelations at the moment which oh, wow. <laughs> which i'm yeah i we we're actually loving it and we've got this fabulous guide and it's you know it, to start it now it's just we're like this is just so relevant but you know getting it all in context and so we're really we're really enjoying that really yeah passionate about that uh i'm yet yeah, obviously involved in the in collective shout and i still am involved with gidget lighthouse and the b center so i'm still doing uh do fun like trying to help with fundraising for all of those so we're still working on functions or other you know other avenues of uh, of fundraising and raising awareness for them so i have those collective shout and then yeah then really sort of family and yeah new chapters but they yeah they're probably the main the main things that we i have on my plate at the moment and yeah we're where my energy is and constantly praying for the to the Lord. You know, it's different different people come across your path or different, you know, if there is something else. But at, at the moment I feel, you know, very, very at peace and we'll just we'll see what uh, see what God brings along in the future. What would you say is keeping you standing firm and growing as a Christian at the moment? It's a sort of an all-encompassing question, I think. I think in my life, in the life that I've lived, uh, even when difficult times have come, I can look back and I can see God working in them. Like I think what I shared with you, you know, even with, with Laura and Laura's illness and, and the timing of that and how that happened and the political journey, you know, it was a 10-year ten, ten year journey and different things that have happened in my life. I think you get to a point and you can look back and you, you can see at the time it was terribly stressful and you're just doing the best you can and, and believing and, you know, knowing God's there, but, you know, sometimes it's very confusing and, and it's a difficult time. But I think sometimes it's lovely. You, the Lord allows you to look back and you think, gosh, you were, you know, you were holding me up in that time and you were there and you know it, it, it's okay i think i couldn't think of anything worse and i have such a heart for people in this time of the world what's going on with the coronavirus what's happening in america if you didn't have a faith like i it must be such a dark time and such a dark place for you so I think for me, and I, as I said, I've always, I've always known God's there and it, it makes sense to me in, in the whole picture and, and, and in the world. And I, I can't, 
see, uh, I find it difficult when people can't see a plan behind it, can't see God behind it, you know, so somehow work out what, what is going on. So I yeah, couldn't imagine life without God, couldn't imagine life without faith. It's been really interesting for Mike and I. We, with everything happening in the world, we, we have still had this amazing peace and I do think that's a total, that's been a total gift from God. And it's not that we're not concerned. It's not that we, you know, aren't, aren't worried at times. It's not that, you know, think what on earth is going on and where is this leading? But I think just having that foundation, it's such a gift. But And my, my husband would say this to you how much. It's not that God... I have some very strong conversations with God in my life. I do not step back. I kind of, in the most respectful way that I can, I do feel the Lord has very, very broad shoulders and he knows what's going on in my heart regardless of what I am saying to him. And so I think within my life I can have the conversation, I have a hard conversation with God, but knowing who he, who he is, knowing the character that is there and that it's a safe place to do that. So I think for me and my faith, that has been really key and I can be totally myself. And that's, that's what I say to my children. I go, if you are upset about something, if, if you don't understand it, if you, you, you know, you you rail and, and, and you're, you're in anguish. Talk to God about it. You know, you don't, you, don't have to, you don't have to make it nicer. You don't have to make it clinical. You know, God, God is there on a real human level and you can have those conversations with him. You can have those card conversations. So I think for me that has certainly been something in my faith that I've found yeah, a, a real blessing. I think some people kind of look at me sometimes and, yeah, but I, I think, no, I think, you know, the Lord, he has very broad shoulders. He wants to hear from us. He wants us to be honest. And I think, you know, that that is a great place to start. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. So coming to God in prayer and being able to be honest about what's going on and, and to know that you can trust him is something that's keeping you keeping on. Yeah, this time of COVID, I've, I've had the same sense that this is so much to worry about this, that all the scary mm. stuff that is thrown at us from the extreme conspiracy theories to the, the ones that actually seem like they might be true to, you know, each and everything that comes away. And the temptation is really to get caught up in it. But there is a sense of knowing that God is in control. And if he's in control, oh. there, there is nothing to worry about because and I, this is a conversation I've had with my kids that the very, very worst thing that could possibly happen to us ultimately would be a horrible destruction of our lives. But then we're with God and we, yes. Have, yes. and he's in control of the whole process and how wonderful that it yes. is to know that and rest in that. Yeah. I'm just having a look at the time now and I realize we're going to have to call it to an end. It's been so good to chat to you and I'm, I'm hoping that the listeners will enjoy this chat just as much as I have. Well, lovely yeah. to yeah, meet you and, and chat with you. And, yeah. That's been oh, really uh, good. Boy, yeah. That's great. Oh, thanks.
We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of The Lydia Project. We would love you to share this episode with others, whether that be by word of mouth, social media, or leaving a review on iTunes. You can find us on most platforms using the handle at TLPCWCW. Music is Wholesome 7 by Dave Depper, and voiceover is by me, Jennifer Mary. 